Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this day. Thank you for being with us, for keeping us. And we ask and pray that you continue to do so as we uh, come to study your word. Please give us much grace. Please give us much light and wisdom and understanding. And uh, may we walk away being uh, shaped by your word uh, to, to be more like Christ, to see more of him um, and to, to glorify your name. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So welcome, guys. Uh, we're doing the book of James. So uh, it's not a long book. It's only how many, like a few chapters. Um, but uh, I think uh, we are giving a whole session to this book because uh, there are some, maybe some difficult passages, especially because. Uh, in James, there appears to be a complete contradiction of Paul's teaching on justification by faith, right? Justification by faith alone. And so um, if you have your Bibles, just, uh, you know, follow along. Uh, and as usual, if you have any questions, comments, thoughts, whatever the case may be, feel free to stop me or put it in the comment section in the chat. And then, yeah. So... <clears throat> Like I said, you know, there, there appears to be a contradiction uh, between James' teaching and Paul's teaching on justification, right? Justified by faith alone or are you justified by works? Uh, are we saved by faith or are you saved by works? So we need to be clear on what is actually going on. So when it comes to the book, chapter 1, verse 1, the book starts off with James. Verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So it begins like a normal letter, but you will see that it doesn't end like a normal letter, right? There is no send my peace and greeting to such and such person. And one of the, the points of discussion around this epistle is which James is this? There are three or four James in the New Testament, and it was a very common name, like how James is a common name today. So historically, it's said to be that Je it's the, the author of this book is James, the half-brother of Jesus. That is a normal position. There's been debate around that still because the Greek writing in this book is of a very high level. Right? It's very well written, it's very sophisticated. And why would that count against the brother of Jesus? Because remember, Jesus and his family did not come from Jerusalem. They grew up in the, the rural areas, right? the fishing areas, in the villages. So education-wise... You wouldn't expect that James to be very well-spoken or good at literature. But it could be that he was just a sharp guy. You know, it's just very smart. You don't have to be well-educated to be a good writer. You don't need a university degree, you know. Uh, and do you know, what the, do you know what the second most popular book of all time after the Bible is? It's A Pilgrim's Progress. And it was written by John Bunyan. And was he educated? Not at all. But he was able to write a classic. He was able to write the second most popular book of all time even. So sometimes you are gifted with natural ability and you're able to study on your own and you can pick up vocabulary and write really well, right? <clears throat> so um, some people argue that against uh, James, the brother of Jesus, but, you know, I don't think it's a very valid one. But the whole topic is not that, is not that important, really. Uh, there, were other, there were other Jameses. So there was James, the brother of John. And the reason why it's not James, the brother of John, is because that James was martyred. He was put to death very early on in the history of the church. Whereas James, the brother of Jesus, went on to become a very big figure 
in the early church in Jerusalem. He became the guy. You can see this in Acts 15. In Acts 15, he's the head of the Jerusalem council. So we traditionally go with him as the author of this book. If it is him, then it's quite special that he introduces himself as just James, a servant of the Lord. You know, he doesn't introduce himself as James, the brother of Jesus, uh, James related to Jesus Christ. Um, so he just sees himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus. The next discussion is whether this is written to Jewish Christians or to all Christians. And if you look again at verse 1, it's, it's a greeting to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And the book of James is very Jewish in nature. You know, it's, it's often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's full of wisdom. It's full of the short, wise, pithy sayings, little Proverbs. It's also quite prophetic in nature. Not prophetic as in telling the future, but prophetic in confronting the audience. So remember when we read through the prophets, how the prophets would just go at the people. They would be reprimanding them. Um, they would, they would they'd tell the people, weep and howl and repent. You adulterous people, stop playing the harlot. So he's like an Old Testament prophet, right? Reading this, you can tell it is some someone who is influenced by the Old Testament like a lot. And... It is someone who's very familiar, also very familiar with the sayings of the Lord Jesus. What he says is a lot similar to what the Lord Jesus taught. Right? So, <clears throat> turning to chapter 1. Chapter 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So it's a very hard pillar to swallow that. When you meet trials of various kinds, rejoice. When you get the letter that, uh, that says you've been retrenched, when you get the letter that says you, you have got cancer, when you get the call with the bad news on the other line, whatever it is, rejoice. Obviously, it's not in a cheesy, fake, happy way. It's not, it's not talking in a masochistic way. This is talking about a deep-rooted joy. You know, why should I rejoice when trials and difficulties come upon my path. Because it is a test of your faith. It is going to test your faith. Are you going to trust God or are you going to trust in your bank balance or your insurance or your natural skills and talents? It is a test. These trials are a test. Who are you going to trust? And if you trust God in, the, in that situation, then it's going to produce steadfastness. Right? It's going to produce stability. And steadfastness has an effect, that's in verse 4, which is that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the word perfect here in verse 4, the word used, the word used means either to be mature or to be perfect, right? It depends on the context. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I've heard some pastors say it means to be mature because you can't be perfect. So be mature, but that doesn't make sense, you know? to be mature as God is mature, I think it's talking about being perfect, right? And here it's talking about being perfect. Be without sin, just as your Father in heaven is without sin. Obviously, you cannot do that, so you need an imputed righteousness, which is found in Christ. And then you will be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. But here, we know that we don't reach perfection on this side of glory, right? That is what First John teaches. So here, in this context, I would interpret it to mean maturity. As you trust God, you grow in stability and you become more mature. 
that is a Christian life. So, so that a trial comes today or tomorrow at work, at school, at home, then you have the opportunity to grow in maturity, right? That is how you see it. That is how we should approach it when we see trials, right? And that is how you'd be able to rejoice. You say, this is a testing of my faith. I can actually, at the end of this trial, come out more mature, more stable, and more mature to the point of lacking in nothing. The idea there is contentment. You lack nothing. So that is applicable to all of us, right? We are tested every day. Verse 5 says, uh, chapter 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. So James will use these very graphic images, a wave of the sea being tossed by the wind. Uh, he says the tongue is like the rudder of a boat. The tongue can be a spark that starts a fire. He uses these graphic images that powerfully portray what he's saying. And here he's saying, you must ask for wisdom, ask God. And remember, when we looked at wisdom literature, when we looked at uh, the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, what, what did we define? How did we define wisdom? We said wisdom is the ability to set goals and knowing how to achieve them. That is wisdom. How do you achieve your goals? It is the wise person who's able to do that. Think of the parable of the unjust or dishonest manager in Luke chapter 16. Uh, he was committing fraud, but in the parable, he's commended. He's commended for being wise because he set a goal. He said, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a beggar. I don't want to be homeless. I, I, I don't want to do manual labor. So he uses illegal means, right? He, he becomes shrewd. He's wise and he, he goes about and achieves his goals. And Jesus even says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Right? Unbelievers are more wise than believers. Unbelievers have wisdom. They know how to achieve their goals. So for Christians, we can't use illegal means. Right? But we have, what, what we can say is, this is the goal. I want to grow in holiness. I want to endure to the end. How do I get there? And there are a whole lot of practical things. You, know, you can read your Bible. You can spend time in prayer and devotion. Be part of a local body of believers and serve. Have fellowship with them. Use your gifts to serve them. Come under the preaching of God's word. Use the means of grace. Put off sin and put on Christ. All of that is wisdom. The Christian life, contrary to popular belief, even amongst Christians, is actually a very practical life. And so in our asking for wisdom, what it means to believe is that I'm actually going to obey when God reveals what he wants me to do through his word. Otherwise, if you say, I don't want to do that, Lord, uh, give me wisdom, but I don't want to obey this part of scripture in my life, then you're not going to receive from the Lord, right? But it's a beautiful promise. It's a promise. If you lack wisdom, ask God. So how often do we go through life? You know, we go through life, uh, go through difficult situations, trying to sort things out by ourselves, Instead of asking the Lord for wisdom, instead of coming to him and casting all of our cares upon him. So he says, uh, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own, own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So in Greek, the word test, right? The word test and the word tempt are actually the same, right? They're the same word. Um, so we are told, we are told to count it all joy when God tests our faith. But here we are told that God never tempts us. Same word, test and tempt, but it can be interpreted both ways. In the Garden of Eden, did God test Adam and Eve? He did, right? He put the tree. It was a test. He said, you are not allowed to eat of the fruit of this tree. That is a test, right? God never tempted them. Satan came along and that, that test became a temptation. But James doesn't deal with the devil. He deals with us, right? He deals with our own hearts. For everything, everything in your life will happen, right? For everything that happens in your life, God is going to test your faith. And praise the Lord for that because it is actually an opportunity for growth. And Satan and your heart in that same situation will use it as a temptation. But it is never God tempting you. James is very clear about that. God, God tempts no one. God cannot be tempted to do evil. And he doesn't tempt anyone to do evil. So never blame God for sin or for temptation. It's a very important lesson for us. Testing is an opportunity to obey God, whereas temptation is an opportunity to disobey. Right? There's that difference there. So he says, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So going back to what he was saying in verse 4, remaining steadfast. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So happy is the man who's, who remains steadfast under trial. So when the test comes, it is like weightlifting in the Olympics. You know, in weightlifting, you've seen those guys, um, they have to lift up a heavy bar and they get it up and they have to hold it for a few seconds, right? You have to lift it. You don't just lift it and you drop it. You have to lift it and hold it for maybe like, I don't know, three, four seconds. And then the buzzer goes. The buzzer goes, success, and then they drop it. It doesn't count if they lift it up to their chest or to their neck or to their forehead. They have to get it up, you know, completely up, our arms outstretched at the top. And then they start counting. But they have to hold it there for some time, right? If they drop it before the buzzer, it doesn't count. So they have to wait for the buzzer. And that is the idea here. We have the testing, we have the trial, and we have to remain steadfast. It's like holding the weight above our heads. It's pressing down upon us, and we know that the buzz is going to sound, so the testing won't go on forever, right? That is not how God works. He won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that. So look at your own life. You know, even the Lord Jesus, the devil troubled him for a season, right? And then that came to an end. So the buzzer is going to sound, and if you remain steadfast, it is true, you become happy. You rejoice. It's like the weightlifter. Once, once the buzzer goes and he can drop the weight, he doesn't get upset and sulk and, you know, feel sorry for himself. No, those guys shout for joy and they're over the moon and they're hugging each other, you know, and celebrating because they have overcome. When you don't give in to your lust or to anger or to the temptation to be anxious and bitter, it's great. It's amazing, right? You have weathered the storm. You have passed the test and you've gained a little more maturity. What we normally do is we pick up the weight, you know, it gets to your chest and you're like, yo, no, it's too heavy. I can't, you know, it's too much. I can't do it. 
and then we drop it, we tap out, we give in, and then it's, oh, nobody knows what I go through, nobody knows how it, how it feels to be me, no one has faced the difficulties that I have. I mean, which one, which one is harder, right? It's, is, is it lifting it up here to your chest or lifting it up overhead? Holding it up overhead is harder, right? That is why the Lord Jesus experienced a whole lot of suffering. He held it up, up there, you know? Are you saying that Jesus didn't know what I went through? Well, he went through far worse. He endured. He remained steadfast. He held the weight. So this is an encouragement to endure. When trials are coming and they're heavy upon you, endure until the end. Overcome, and that produces steadfastness. And then you will lack nothing. You will be content. And then James, James goes on. Um, there are a lot of commands and imperatives. There are over 50 imperatives, 5-0, in this letter. And there are only 108 verses. So that tells you that there's a lot of commands. That are, there's a lot of things that we should be doing. So chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then verse 22, he says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves then he talks about a mirror because uh, if you are a hearer of the word and not a doer it is like a person who looks in the mirror and then immediately forgets what they look like it says verse 25 but the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing so what does he mean here what is the law of liberty well if you have a if you have a negative view of the law, then you could never see the law being called the law of liberty because to you the law is bad, right? So how can it free you? But if you have a high view of the law, then there is no problem, right? Because the law is actually good. The law is good, but it is not meant to save us. It is, uh, I like the, uh, I've heard this uh, analogy and it's a very helpful one. It's like, it's like that mirror that James talks about, right? What does a mirror do? It shows you what you look like. When you wake up in the morning and you, you look like a mess, you're looking very crusty, the mirror shows you exactly where the crust is, where the messed up hair, the messed up whatever is, right? You don't then take the mirror and then try to fix your face and clean yourself with the mirror, right? That's ridiculous. It was not meant for that. The mirror is not meant for that. In the same way, the law is not designed to do that. The law was never meant to fix you. That's why Paul in his epistles will say negative things when talking about the law because you are using it to try and fix yourself, right? That is not its purpose. That is actually called legalism. It is Christ who washes us and cleans us, right? The law shows us our sin and it shows us what obedience looks like. But Christ is the one who actually cleans us and makes us right. Verse 26, he says, If anyone thinks he's, reli he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So he uses the word religion, well, the, the translators use the word religion, and, and this is the traditional meaning of religion, right? Today, if you use the word religion, it's, it's got a sort of negative connotation, right? Or else it just means spiritual, you know, I'm religious, and you, you're holding candles and praying to the universe, to the stars or something. But it used to mean to be religious was to be Christian, right? If you're a Christian, you were, you were said to be religious. And that is what he's saying here. That's what James is saying here. It's true Christianity. So verse 27, he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So first, remember first he talks about the tongue. He says, if you don't bridle your tongue, but you deceive your heart, then your religion is worthless. And James has quite a lot of emphasis on the tongue. And doesn't that echo what Jesus said? Remember what Jesus said? He said, out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the Lord also used the way that we speak as a spiritual measure of our hearts. And I hope you understand that when he talks about the tongue in this letter, he's not talking about the muscle in your mouth, right? He's referring to the heart. He's referring to you, the core, and, and what comes out of your heart. The tongue is the greatest portrait of our hearts. And so religion, you know, true Christianity that is pure before God is practical, right? That's why, that's what verse 27 is saying, is that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James is very practical on what Christianity looks like. And this is, this here is a statement showing us that pure religion is serving it's serving and caring for the most vulnerable in society. Orphans and widows are always the most vulnerable in society, even today. Maybe not as vulnerable as it used to be in certain societies, but they're still vulnerable. True religion is caring for the most vulnerable. And he's talking to the church here, right? That is the context. He's writing, it's a general epistle written to churches. So that is the primary focus, looking after the vulnerable in the church. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. Often people focus on orphans and widows. You know, caring for orphans and widows. And that is important. That is vital. It's very important. We focus on the social side of things. But we forget to keep oneself unstained from the world. It is also about holiness. Right? It's practical holiness. Um, so we must not forget that. Because in the same way, you get people on the other side who just care about holiness. And it's just, you know, walking and living holy don't do this but you forget that you should be helping others you should be serving others you should be lifting up uplifting those who are downtrodden it should be both right we need both things so chapter two if you turn to chapter two he goes on to talk about partiality and not honoring and respecting rich people above others so he gives an example of a rich person who walks into church verse two he says for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. So that must have been happening, right? And it's crazy, it's ridiculous. It's still happening today, sadly. You know, you've seen, I've seen churches, I've been in churches where um, the rich and the poor are segregated. You know, you treat it better. If you have a car or you drive this or you dress like that, and if you're poor, you push to the back, right? And it's still happening. It's, it's, it's just very sophisticated, right? Um, it can even happen in the best of churches. It can look like saying, well, we don't want to lose the rich people in the church because they fund the church. You know, they tithe the most. And so we adjust the preaching. Let's adjust it a little just to deal with them because we need their income. You know, we need their income to survive. We won't say anything offensive to the rich. You know, they don't say, they don't preach uh, the full counsel of God so that they don't offend people who will then leave with their money. Or they will say, we will have special seats for the rich who tithe a lot of money. Whatever the case may be, we must be careful of this, right? In many churches, if you are a successful businessman, they will make you an elder, right? It's crazy. 
And they do it because you become important when you are wealthy, right? You have social status and you, you seen and you bring in influence. And that is completely against what the church should be. And then James gets into faith without works is dead, right? So chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving, without giving them the needs needed for the body, the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also by faith itself, it does not have works. Sorry. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you by faith my, my faith by works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. And he was called a friend of God. Um, he says, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So look at verse 24 again. Right? He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So does that sound a bit shocking? Well, what does Paul say? So in Romans, you don't have to turn there, but in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Right? And then Paul will go on to talk about Abraham. James spoke about Abraham, and now Paul says in, in Romans 4, verse 2, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And yet James says he was justified by works. So what is going on? Is this like a contradiction? Um, what's happening? Because Paul will actually continue and say in verse 3 of Romans 4, he says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So many, many liberal scholars say that James and Paul had different theologies, right? And they, they say that this passage, this passage is evidence of contradiction in the Bible. And they say that Paul won. Paul became more influential than James. And so people, so Christians go with Paul's theology over James. Right? They say that the reformers just preferred Paul. And so they went on to make justification by faith alone a big deal. But if we hold that the Bible is God's word and it is inspired and it is inerrant, then can there be a contradiction? The answer is no. A God Look, a God who cannot make up his mind and get things straight is not a God worth serving. Our basis is there is no contradiction here. So the two men are dealing with, with, with different things. Right? That's what's happening. James and Paul are dealing with different things. It may be that James is reacting to different things. Maybe he was reacting to followers of Paul. Maybe some of them took the teaching of justification by faith alone so strongly that they were like, listen, don't worry about works. It's by grace alone. It doesn't matter if there's no change in your life. It's a free gift. It's all grace. And you can see how easily down the line, as time goes, 
after a while, that could develop into the thinking of believers. It becomes extreme. And so James has to react against that and say, hold on a minute. Are you saying that it is, if it is just by faith and there is no change in your life, then you can go to heaven? Well, you know what? The devil and the demons believe. They have faith. They're not going to heaven. All right. So that doesn't save you. If there is no accompanying works, then it is not a real faith. I hope that makes sense. Another way, so the, the word justified here can have two meanings. If you are theologically minded and you have grown up in a Protestant, in a Reformed church, if I say justified, what do you think? You say justified by faith. You know, you complete that sentence. Um, that's what comes to mind, right? It's to be declared righteous. So if you are justified, it means to be declared righteous. Legally, you are declared righteous and the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. You are justified as if you have never sinned. That is normally how the Reformed would think of the word justified, right? But if I go and I, I want to go buy a house somewhere, right? And Warren says to me, Look, Kaya, I don't think you should. I don't think you should buy this house. Um, it's it's got a whole lot of cracks. It's in a bad neighborhood. The value is gonna go down. The foundation doesn't look strong. The roof is falling apart. You are being ripped off. And I still go ahead and I buy that house. A month later, it falls apart. Warren will come and say, "I was justified in my warning." Right? Can you see that there's a different use of the word? Warren is justified in his caution. Right. So a synonym for that is vindicated. Warren is vindicated. Does that make sense? We can use it for a whole lot of reasons. We can use that word in a lot of different ways. I was justified in voting for this party now that the results have come out. I was, I was, vindi I was vindicated for not taking that job offer. I was vindicated for refusing this, this, this drink or that food. And that is how James uses the word justified. He says, works vindicate your faith. A person is vindicated by works and not by faith alone. Because if you say faith and there's no evidence, then you are just like Satan. You are just like the demons. There is no real change. So this is a very important doctrine because many say they are Christians, but there is no change in their lives. There are even churches that will say it's fine. They have accepted Jesus as their savior, but not as their Lord. They have rejected him as their king. And so hopefully you can see from James that that, that that is nonsense, right? You cannot say, I am saved, but there's no change in, in, in my lifestyle. And there's no change in my heart and my emotions towards God or anything, right? I'm not saying you'll be perfect, but there must be some change. Just a little, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. There must be something, some change. As long as there are works that vindicate, that prove that your faith is real. So that is what James is talking about. And so he uses Abraham as an example. He says, Abraham was justified by his works, right? Abraham was vindicated by his works. What works? When he took Isaac to sacrifice him, what was happening there? It was a test. Going back to the whole test and temptation thing. It was a test and a temptation, a temptation happening at the same time. Learning to trust God because what did God say? He said, he said to Abraham, in Isaac, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed, right? And now God says, go and kill Isaac. What's going on? You know, if I kill him, then, then how are the nations going to be blessed? 
you know, how will the promise come true? But Abraham believes God and the evidence that he believes God is that he takes his son and is willing to kill him. And the book of Hebrews tells us that he believed that even if he killed him uh, and, and he, he burnt his body, God would then raise his body uh, out from the ashes. God would raise him back to life, right? And so the works, the works vindicated his faith. Think about when did Abraham believe and it was counted to him as righteousness? It was in Genesis chapter 15, right? When did he take Isaac up to be sacrificed? It was in Genesis 22, right? That's seven chapters later and that's 50 or 60 years later. So you see, he had faith and then the works vindicated it, right? It was, it was probably the, it was actually the high point of Abraham's faith, the greatest display of his faith in God. Those are the works that best vindicate him. And there's mention of Rahab as well, Rahab the prostitute. So Rahab the prostitute and Abraham are always used as examples of faith. But now they are being used as examples of works. Rahab says, um, so we saw Abraham's works and what were Rahab's works? Rahab says, I believe in the God of Israel. He is the one true God and I've heard about him. So when the Israelite spies come, she acts in faith and she hides them. And she lies to protect them. And we are told that that is proof that she had real faith. So there is no clash. There is no contradiction. Paul says that faith will produce real change in our lives. Right? Fruits of the Spirit. Martin Luther, when he found, he, when he found uh, justification by faith alone, um, that kind of became the only lens he looked at everything by. You know? And because he was such a radical guy, when he read the book of James... He had a headache, you know, it was stressful for him, you know, he's like, what's going on here? But he didn't throw it out of the Bible, right? He quoted it, he quoted a lot from it, but he didn't have a high view of James, which is sad. We should have a, a high view of every book in the scriptures. Um, but that is only because of his experience and his background. Uh, James, otherwise, is very, very important for us to understand. Okay, are there any questions there? Okay. Chapter 3, if you turn in chapter 3, he goes back to the tongue and there's some powerful images. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, with it, talking about the tongue, with it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. It's quite sobering, right? How do we talk to people? How do we talk about people? Remember, people are made in the image of God. That is why murder is so horrible. Because you are killing an image bearer of God. Right? It's, the, it's the next closest thing to killing God. I can't kill God, so I'll kill someone who looks like him, who bears his image. And so murder is a terrible thing. And some teach, some actually teach that after the fall, so when Adam and Eve fell, that we lost the image of God. But James is very clear. Right? He's talking, this is thousands of years after Adam and Eve, after the fall. But he's still maintaining that men and women are in the image of God. So we are in the image of God. And then he says, uh, verse 12, Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Again, it's, it's a lot of echoes of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he said and what he taught. And if you go to chapter 4, chapter 4, he says, what, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? So think about this, right? Think Think if you always fight with your parents, if you um, always fight with your spouse or your friends or your siblings, or you fight with a guy who voted for a different political party from you, 
Why does that happen? Why do we fight? James says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So why? Why do you respond like this? Why do you quarrel? Why do politicians go on smear campaigns? Why do colleagues sabotage each other's work? Why do friends turn on each other? Why do countries invade other countries? It's because you want things. You want stuff. Your passions war within you. Right? It's passions. It's desires for things. There are passions going on inside. These, these things that I want, you know, it's, it's, it's really simple but really profound. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. I want this and I don't have it, so I fight and I quarrel so that I can have it, right? Even to the point of death. Um, it's, quite, it's quite sad. It's, it's crazy to me how after, during every election cycle, you know, there's just deaths being reported deaths of candidates you know such and such a person was running and he's been murdered and he's been moved out the way it's like it's 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 madness you know it's it's this person this party wants power and so they're willing to kill verse 2 he says you desire and you do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask you do not ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The, the King James Version will say, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. So James likes to use the word adulteresses. And why does James use the word adulteresses? Think of, think of the Old Testament. You know, what is, what is the nation of Israel called so many times you know i feel like if you open just pick a spot in the old testament and you open it and you read it you will see israel being called this you will see israel being called the harlot being called the prostitute being called the whore again you see the influence of the old testament here and so he speaks in a way that say a paul wouldn't since you know paul grew up with a more greco-roman upbringing and influence with adulteresses he's linking them to unfaithful israel where Israel is playing a harlot, and the Lord calls her an adulteress. So he says, as for you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What does that mean? Must you stop being friends with non-Christians? You know, stop being friends with anyone who's not a church? No, but you see that you've seen that creep into Christianity, right? People separate from the world physically. We make it seem very holy, like it's a pious thing to do, like the world is going to taint us somehow. And I remember uh, Pastor Mike once told the story of a lady who was traveling to a new job um, and she was a secretary for a secular, secular company. So he worked for, she worked for secular people, but now she got a new job as a secretary for a pastor, you know, because friendship with the world is enmity and she wanted to be pure and to keep away from the filth of the world. And then a guy talks to her and he, she, he hears her story and explains to her that, look, that is not what the scripture teaches. And then from then on, whenever she saw that guy, she avoided him because she, she said he was sent by the devil. Right? He said he's of the world. And that, I, I feel like we've all maybe had an experience of that, you know, seeing people like, oh, separate from these people because they are dirty, they are defiled, etc., etc. But that is not what the scripture teaches. We are not to live in Christian bubbles, in Christian ghettos. The rest of the Bible is very clear. We are in the world, but not of it. But if you are seeking the approval from the world, 
and not from the Lord, then you are a friend of the world. And the Lord also says that when, uh, he also says when talking about false teachers that the world hears them, right? The world hears false teachers because they are a friend of the world. Abraham was a rich man, but he was no friend of the world. And that is because he looked forward in faith and he saw the day of Christ and rejoiced and was glad. So if a, if a pastor or a theologian is, is super popular in the world only, if he's a friend of the world, then that is a big red flag, right? Even us, we should look for that. If we see signs of it, uh, woe to you if, if all men speak well of you. We should, not be, we should not be seeking to get popularity or approval from the world. Okay. Verse 13, uh, he says, he's talking about people who are independent. People who say, I'm going to do this today. I'm, gonna, I'm making a plan. I'm going to make money here. I'm going to do this thing here. Get my qualification for this. Without acknowledging, without acknowledging that the Lord is sovereign. Verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, for a little time and then vanishes. So it must always in the forefront of our minds be the truth that God is sovereign. He is in control. That doesn't mean we now say, I'm not going to plan for anything because, you know, God is in control. We just live and we see what happens, you know. Um, instead, verse 5, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So you should plan. If you, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. You know, you must plan, but always acknowledge that the Lord is sovereign. So you must make your plans. Make your plans for the future. Make, make, we should make our plans as a church for a new church building, for evangelism, for ministry, for missions. For adding to our number. But remember, unless the Lord builds a house, we labor in vain. Over all of our over all of our plans and our lives, it's the Lord, right? He is sovereign over all of it. Um, what does the proverb say? You know, a man uh, may plan his steps, but it's the Lord who who sets them. Right? We acknowledge God's sovereignty. So this is what I would like for my career, for my family, for my walk with the Lord. But tomorrow it could all come crashing down. Because it is the Lord who ultimately plots our steps. Tomorrow, our lives could be taken away from us, right? And then what are you going to do with all the mind maps and all the notes and things that you wrote in your diary about your five-year plans and all that stuff? To think otherwise is to be arrogant, right? To think, to think that you are in, the, in control and the captain of your life is actually to be a practical atheist. Because you live as if God is not sovereign. Because you say, I'm the God of my life. I'm the captain of my ship. I control my life and my destiny. But James tells us in verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Okay. And then in the last chapter, this is the last chapter, right? Chapter 5, yes. Okay, so he gives a warning to the rich. So he says, one, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten, eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like, fly, like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which, keep, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. 
So that's hectic, right? Does that remind you of Old Testament prophets and how they spoke of Israel? Remember? So coming back to the rich and the poor topic, um, because James, so this, this letter has been used by a lot of, not really communists, but Marxist ideologies and what we call liberation theology. So that is popular, probably most popular in South America, but it's not really so popular anymore, but it used to be a really big thing, especially amongst Roman Catholic theologians. They use passages like this in James to say that God is for the rich and he's against the poor. And they don't even qualify it in any way, right? It's just a blanket statement. They say that there's the haves and there's the have-nots. There's the working class and there's the bourgeoisie. That's how they divide society into, into those two categories only. It's very simplistic. But in scripture, that is not what is happening. You can't use the Bible to justify communism or anything like that and then say that God is for the poor and against the rich. You can't say God hates CEOs of companies but loves those who have nothing. That is not biblical. And it's terrible exegesis, right? We know better. We know um, how to interpret scripture better. Even in the passage that we read, these rich people, are they good people? Are they nice people? No. What do they do? They commit fraud. They oppress. They even murder, it says in verse 6. They are greedy. They condemn the righteous. They are unjust. There's injustice. And the poor, and the poor in the, in the whole of the Bible, the poor are not those who go to heaven just because they are poor. Right? It, is, it is the poor who have lost everything. Right? They have been oppressed and they are vulnerable and so they put their faith and their trust in God. That is the poor that God loves. It's those that put their trust in Him. I've met poor people who are horrible, horrible people. Just because you are poor doesn't mean you are nice. Right? Many poor people are wretched, they are violent, they are vile, they are perverse and they are they're even more greedy than the rich. This is, the poor who, this is talking about the poor who trust God. The rich here are those who oppress and commit fraud and injustice and persecute. So are they rich people in heaven? Definitely. Right? We know some of them from the Bible. We know Abraham. Abraham was rich. Job, David, Solomon. There are many. Even in the New Testament, saying God loves the poor but hates the rich sounds like a compelling argument when you hear it, but it's not coherent. It actually doesn't make sense. What happens if you're poor and then you get a lot of money? You know, you win the lotto. Does God hate you now? What is, what is a lot of money anyways? How do you quantify it? What is the standard for rich? You know, because then you just have to find that out and then it's better to stay poor. Stay below that. If you want to stay, if you want to go to heaven, stay poor. No? But let me say this, right, in closing of this passage. Where would you put yourself? Right In the whole rich versus poor debate. Uh, would you say you are rich? Would you say you are poor? What if I told you that we are all rich? Obviously, we are rich in Christ, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about rich, rich. You and I live better than 99% of the population of the world has ever lived in history. That is a fact. What would Solomon give to have hot water and cold water running out of the same tap in a room? sometimes several rooms, what he would give for electricity, even if they took it away from him two hours a day and called it load shedding, what he would give for a car, a heater, an air conditioner, a smartphone, all of these things, the shelter that we have, uh, readily available food, you walk into a building and get any kind of food you want from anywhere in the world. Have you realized that like all the food in the supermarket is from all over the world? 
right? And you can just pick it. You don't have to slaughter it. You don't have to chase an animal. Um, sorry if you hear this banging. It's the fireworks because it's Diwali. Um, but you don't have to go. You don't. You don't have to go hunting your food. You just go to the store and you get whatever you want. You don't even have to go to the store anymore, right? You order it online and they bring it to you. I mean, we all think other people are rich, right? We all look at Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. But just think what the definition of rich has come to mean now. If you don't have four luxury cars and a mansion, you are miserable because you don't have a nice life. You don't have enough in life. It's crazy. Look, people don't starve to death in our country. Did you know that? And I mean that on an economic national scale. Systematically, systemically, no one starves to death in our country. Obviously, people will die of starvation here and there, but it is not symptomatic of our country. People are starving to death in Ethiopia or Sahawari. You don't, you don't even have to work in South Africa and you'll be fine. Right? You can get a plate of food. People have a choice. People will refuse hard labor jobs out of preference right? to work in an office or to work in this thing. Um, so there's a lot of wealth. We are rich and we live in an age of comfort. Comfort is a huge idol. And so we have to be careful. Are we like that? You know, are we oppressing people? Are we being fraudulent? Are we defrauding others? Are we unjust towards others? I'm making the point that this passage is relevant to us. It's just as relevant to me and you as it is to Elon Musk or Patrice Motipe or the Oppenheimers. Right? We shouldn't see this and see rich. I'm like, oh, it's that person. We shouldn't divert these passages to others. You shouldn't read this and think, and then think of the CEO of Discovery or the people who live in Santon. What about you? What about yourself and your own heart? You know, you need to, we need to be checking ourselves. And then lastly, there's the whole prayer of faith. So verse 13, um, he says, If anyone among you, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So what is happening here? You know, some reform folks get worried. They're like, ah, it sounds like a healing verse. Lol. Verse, uh, so he says, verse 13, um, he says, if it, is anyone among you suffering? Uh, and then... Verse 15 and the prayer of faith. So there's a link between, in this passage, there's a link between sickness and sin. We need to be very careful because uh, there are churches that say uh, there is always a link between sickness and sin. Right? If you have a headache, it's not because you're dehydrated. It's because you lack faith. If you have a stomach ache, it's not because of food poisoning. It's a lack of faith. If you have chest pains, it's because you didn't tithe. You know, I've heard all of these things. They link any sickness to sin. But clearly that is not the case. And scripture will show us that. But here, this is a unique situation. It says if someone is suffering or sick. And if someone is physically sick or even spiritually sick, like a sort of depression, then the person comes. And if the person comes and they own their sin, they confess it to the elders and the elders pray and anoint them with oil. Right? And it's not a normal word for, for anointing. So there's a whole lot of discussion about that. I didn't really get like all the info. But this is not saying that, this passage is not saying that I have the flu and, you know, I need to call the elders. We can pray for one another, right? We, even at church, we put people's names in the bulletin. We pray for people that are not well. 
Uh, we pray for people at our growth groups. But this is something different. It seems it's for when there's a sickness as a result of a sin that you are not dealing with. Then you come to the elders and you confess it. I'm living in sin, whether it's stealing or living in secret sin, uh, adultery, fornication, whatever the case may be. Confess it and ask and ask for prayer and they will be saved. Can you see that? There is that there's that there's that language being used. There's there's salvation language being used, um, restorative language. Um, and verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So I think it refers to those kinds of situations. And then uh okay, we'll be out of time. Verse 19 he says, Um my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings him back, so whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And then it just ends like that. So, okay, let's, let's leave it there. Are there any questions? I already see there's one from uh, Malishwane. Um, you guys can post any more or any thoughts, any uh, comments, any disagreements that you have. So, Marishan is asking, would we then say that Paul, in the Romans context, works meant Moses' law? And James is not referring to war, works in the terms, but rather. Um, I think it's the same. I, I, think, I think it's the same. It's, it's just, in a sense, you, you, I feel like it's, it's like two sides of the same coin, you know. It's like saying, faith will produce works. Right, so Paul will say faith, uh, faith, and now that you have faith, you will produce works. And then James is saying, um, he's here and he's like, like works that prove your faith, right? So it's like, it's like you're standing on uh, two ends of the same swimming pool, right? It's like here you see the faith, here you see the works. So Paul is saying, let me see your faith, and then he says, okay, cool, now go do your works. And then James is saying. Let me see your works that prove your faith, essentially. So it's the same thing, right? Uh, works, I think works refers to the same thing. I don't think it's different because, you know, the law, Moses' law is, is, is still foundational to how we ought to live as Christians, right? Um, all the instructions in, in Scripture, all commands, everything flows from the law, flows from the Ten Commandments. So, yeah, I hope that answers the question. Are there any other questions or thoughts? Mosi, I'm I'm so sorry. Get wait, can you hear me first of all? Oh wait. I'm on mute. Oh sorry, I was on mute. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. Mosi, can you can you can you guys hear me now? Is it fine? Is that a yes? Okay, thank you. 
interesting. Okay, sorry, Mosi, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to please repeat that. Like, there's fireworks going on outside, and it's it was really loud, so I had to put on earphones. But please repeat them. I'm listening. I can hear clearly now. I'm just closing the window. Um, you, you're on mute if you are speaking. If you lost Mossy, oh no. Okay, or can someone maybe repeat her question for me, please? Yeah. 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 I mean Yeah, I guess I guess that that is a that is a way to understand it, right? Because I mean love is love is proven, right? It's it's proven by by um by actions, by by works because <clears throat> you know, um like God, that's what God did, right? When he came to us, he says he he loved us. He loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for us, right? God doesn't, does not just say, hey, I love you, and then, you know, that's it. So that, that is, uh, I think that's a, a good way of understanding what James means here. It's like, um, it's, it's something that vindicates your love, right? And so even going back to what I was saying is you can use it in, in many, you can use the word justify, how James used justifies in a lot of scenarios, you know? It's like your your work ethic will be vindicated or will be justified by what you produce, you know. Um, you, you, you're writing exams, your, your marks will be, uh, vind- how, much, wait, how much studying will be vindicated by your marks or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think using love is, is, is a good way to understand that. So, you know. Are there any other other questions or thoughts, guys? Or even disagreements? Please, I'm always happy when there's disagreements. Okay. I think everyone's happy then. Right. Normally when I'm about to wrap up, it's when the last minute question comes in. But I think we're fine. So, Okay. Um, we'll leave it there while well, James was addressing James has addressed disagreements and quarreling he has he has really has um, okay so we'll leave it there for this week guys um, thanks for coming by um, let me just close for us in prayer and then um, I'll just give a few announcements and then we go our separate ways Lord we thank you for um, this day thank you for time we could spend in your word thank you for uh, the book of James, Lord, uh, it's a very convicting book, Father. May we be using it to as a mirror to uh, see where we fall short, Lord, where we fall short. 
um, not as a means to, to fix ourselves, Lord, but to, to turn to the grace and the mercies of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is able to, to make us right before the Father, who indeed has made us right with Him when He came and died on the cross, uh, took, taking upon Himself our sins and imputing His righteousness to us. And uh, ask that uh, these words in this book, Lord, may they encourage us to holy living, may they encourage us to... Um, uh, practically live out the faith that we have, Lord, to do works um, with the works not being an end in and of themselves, but doing works uh, for the sake of our brothers and sisters, for the vulnerable, and doing it all to the glory of, our, of your name. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.